Welcome to another edition of Market Impact Insights, your podcast source for business leadership perspectives to help your business grow. Hear from experts in marketing, sales, business strategy, and more with practical advice for business success. Make sure you won't miss the latest episodes by visiting marketimpactnow.com. Now, here's your host, Dan Albaum. Welcome back, everyone, to another amazing episode of Market Impact Insights. You know, as you think about the past year and just how much change and disruption businesses have faced, and specifically in marketing and across the tactical mix, there's probably no greater area of tactics that's been more impacted with the pandemic and the need to pivot than events. And I was looking at some uh, statistics and some research recently that really jumped out to me, that really underscores just how much transition uh, the events space is having to deal with. Uh, looking at uh, the whole COVID range from last March, the estimate is the pandemic has resulted in over $500 billion in cumulative losses for the U.S. travel economy. Now, that's obvious, travel being a, a you know fairly decent size component of the expense. But when you look at what's happened to event professionals in terms of their business, uh, there's an estimate since last March that 90% of event professionals saw some or most of their business really go away, be deferred, go away, um, huge disruption. And then in November, in another survey, 52% of event professionals reported losing income as a result of the pandemic, uh, furloughs uh, and double digits, uh, layoffs. Big, big disruption. But here's the interesting thing. And we've seen this resilience as I've talked to different business leaders on this podcast, the ability to adapt and change and, and maybe acquire some new skills and change the paradigm that's really going to have long-term impacts. So in looking at those event planners, nearly three quarters of them report that they have become more proficient in technology as a result of the pandemic. And that obviously is going to bode very well for the future um, as we come out of the pandemic. And then here's another interesting stat. Almost three quarters of those planners also say that they plan to continue to employ a digital strategy to maintain their virtual audience, even when they return to physical events. So we're seeing transition, we're seeing evolution, and it's going to... uh, go on well beyond uh, beyond the pandemic. And I'm really excited to have a true event and marketing expert join me today, Peter Gillette, who's Managing Director of MarketPoint, also CEO of Zuant, has decades of experience. He's been a keen pioneer of marketing innovation, founded MarketPoint back in 1982, with a focus around delivering database marketing and CRM systems that help companies connect better with their customers globally, help them channel new sales opportunities through a suite of services and cloud-based dashboards. But through the evolution and providing those services, Peter and his team also developed the Zuant application, which we'll talk a little bit more about, which is providing real-time analytics, improving return on investment in terms of uh, the event execution. And so, as I mentioned before, um, very much of an innovator, uh, Peter's been 
the recipient of numerous awards. He won the British Federation's Award for Design and Innovation. He's been a finalist in BBC's Tomorrow World Prince of Wales competition around industrial design and production. And here's the big one. Back in 1997, he launched the world's first, that's right, I said first, cloud-based CRM system for Lucent Technologies. So a lot of innovation in Peter's background, a lot of experience working with companies to better quantify their investment across a wide range of different marketing execution, including events. So I'm really pleased to have Peter come and talk to us today and share his wisdom and his thoughts about what's happening with this event evolution and where things might be headed going forward. Peter, welcome to Market Impact Insights. Hello, Dan. Yeah, good to be on the program. So I always like to ask my guests on this podcast, I like to go back to um, the beginning of their careers, and especially when I'm talking with company founders, because I, I think it's really interesting kind of what what triggered what was the catalyst to want to be that kind of entrepreneur to actually found a company to grow it? And I'm curious in your case, was that something you had as a long-term goal or did that just kind of happen by chance? What, what's the background story on that? I think it's just what you're made of, Dan. It's just uh, it's an interesting question. I think it, it just happens as part of your, your natural DNA. I mean, I remember this all started as a teenager at school, me and a few mates used to dredge old cycle frames out of the local river and then strip them down and refurb them and sell them. So, you know, obviously there was uh, some uh, business thoughts in there from an early age and, and uh, that was possibly more fun than actually studying, but, but that's another story. Right. Well, so that's new information for me. And I've known you for a while, Peter. So now I know your business career started in a river. So that's a good place to start. (laughs) (laughs) But it's gone, obviously, um, grew from there. And so, you know, as I mentioned earlier, one of the things, uh, one of your your proudest innovations, I'm sure, is the web-based CRM. And I'm, I'm curious, can you tell a little bit more about the story behind that? And as you were going through that process of that innovation, when you were thinking about your vision of where this this whole CRM uh, capability was going to go, has it played out the way that you thought it would? No, not really. It just it keeps evolving and changing, doesn't it? I mean, when we started Market Point, it was as a, a database marketing company. Uh, it was before the PC had even been invented. Uh, Apple was just starting to get around there with their home computers, Commodore PET. You know, that takes you back a long, long time, and uh, so we invested in uh, a lot of money in these heavyweight mini-computers of, of the time to help clients follow up their leads better. Uh, we had a long-standing partnership with a company in, in Cedar Rapids called AdTrack Corporation, and uh, we represented them globally, and uh, part of following up leads just making sure that, you know, investment in marketing, advertising, direct mail in those days, particularly, was followed up by the, the salespeople. So just, it was ROI from that, that early stage. And as part of hosting this data and acquiring new data for clients as part of sort of um, market penetration studies, that sort of thing, uh, clients like Lucent came to us and uh, we already had been through a couple of 
iterations of what we called early CRM in those days. Um, they were just marketing databases, weren't they? Um, and uh, they started to talk about this internet thing, and it, you know, it might be quite useful. Um, of course, back then it was so difficult synchronizing different databases. You know, just yeah. in one country, hard enough, but let alone internationally. So, the internet and uh, the web just provided provided that really easy integration with any number of nodes around the world. So it just naturally evolved, you know, just like the normal flow of things. Right. And it's really changed the whole nature of the relationship between companies and their customers, hasn't it? Because it's given the ability to really have, the, have that deeper understanding at every stage of that, uh, what we call the buyer or the customer's journey, right? Just deeper insights. Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely, for sure. I mean, in those early days, it worked really well for Lucent. They're a tech, they were a tech company, spin-off from uh, AT&T Bell Labs at the time. And uh, it, it's just funny going back to some of those early presentations to other prospective customers. And uh, if only I'd recorded some of the conversations where we were doing demos and, and modems were switching away, you know, that sort of echo in every household in those days, wasn't it? As you try to get online and uh, comments coming back saying, well, you know, the, the theory is great, but we really don't think this uh, internet is going to catch on. So it, it's, that's the trouble with early innovation, isn't it? You, you, you're snagged by the lack of tech that's available to make these things work really well. You just have to keep pushing forward. Um, but look at us now. But just there's just data everywhere. It's uh, amazing, isn't it? What what you can do, and I think it's the, the the problem is having that view of the wide array of of software that's available. That SaaS software um, for for sales and marketing, you know, numbers thousands of. of speciality platforms and, and the problem is choosing what's right for your business i guess now right and, and i think it goes hand in hand with something we've talked about on this podcast too uh with some of the other leaders which is really this um shift over the past 10 20 years in marketing from more of being an art to being more of a science right and and part of that shift is just having greater regular access to data to really improve the quality of the analytics. Yes. Or maybe data enhancing the art so that it matches what people are interested in because you're analyzing more and more of people's particular interests and, and uh, how they might react to different forms of graphical design. So, you know, let's not forget the art and design side. I think that's, that's what makes marketing exciting. And uh, make sure that we, we need a lot of uh, content producers to make this whole market really interesting. Most definitely. Now, as a founder of a business and as a product application innovator, what have been some of the biggest challenges that you've had in developing culture within your business and then translating that into sustainable growth? What's really been key for you, Peter? It's finding the right tech team, I think, who you can sort of work with. Um, 
understand where you're headed, bringing new ideas into the into the pot as well. Um, that that that's always always the big the big challenge. Um, and you know where you're located in the world makes a difference, isn't it? You talk about culture. Um, you know, here in the UK, great country for innovation and tech advancements. You know, going back through the centuries, but in the SaaS software world, um, you, you've, I think you still need, and I know there's some great um, exceptions that prove the rule, but that whole Silicon Valley culture is, is wonderful, isn't it? Because if you're, all your people get immersed in, in what's happening and the buzz and, and, and so on. And uh, that, that helps the, the momentum move forward. So if I had a regret, it's not... But those in those days, moving Market Point out to the West Coast and uh, and developing the business there, I think um, that would be a better would have been a better atmosphere to to, to compete on the world stage. But um, who knows? We're, we are where we are these days. That's right. That's right. Now uh, you're based in the UK. You talked about the global stage, and you've worked with clients that are also based around the world. And I'm really curious, um, we, we've heard this phrase, thinking global. What do you think that really means? It's, I think there's a big difference, isn't there, between B2B and B2C. B2C with branding and sort of much simpler products in a way. You know, you've got brands and you've got products and you've got brand values that that can be presented and delivered globally. Then thinking global is 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 the only way to go. In in B two B, I still believe that that should work, but there are huge challenges in making it work. And from my experience. Um, the big global companies still think regionally. You know, they all talk about Americas yeah, and their right. APAC, and then each of those little individual fiefdoms will, you know, tip their cap to the, the global HQ, but at the same time, they well, no, our market's different. We, we can't think global. We need to adapt. So. Really, that's what triggered our move to create a network of contact centers around the world. And that's been a key part of MarketPod's success because you can think global, but at the same time, allow campaigns um, to be adapted to, to, to work effectively in, in each country. And I suppose in the UK, that's the benefit we do have. We, we understand that. You know, distinctly different cultures you have just by going across the channel, you know, from Belgium to France or, or Holland, uh, across the border, and you're in a different world. And it's not just translating campaigns, it's, it's clearly culture uh, and, and going much deeper into, you know, the change of, of creativity that's needed to understand and work with the different, you know, sense of humor that you'll find. Um, not just by country, but within regions in the country. So right. thinking global is such a complex 
business. So um, clearly, from a tech point of view, it must be the way to go. And having the same platforms, even if the creativity and the content has to vary so much, having those same platforms is absolutely key for efficiency, for productivity, for sharing ideas, and, and not just pushing an approach from wherever the HQ country is, but having a two-way um, analysis of, of what's working well in different regions and why, and can they be adapted and adjusted to suit other countries as well. So uh, Think Global is, is, is just so, so important for, for those big organizations. You know, and as we're using technology to connect more virtually, I'm just thinking, Peter, this idea of uh, creating global interconnectedness within organizations, right, that may have teams that are located in different parts of the world. It just seems like uh, the world is shrinking a little bit, right, in terms of those uh, per interpersonal connections that happen. Sure, sure, sure. And, and obviously the pandemic, we mentioned that earlier on, and, and, and it's going to be a feature in discussions for years to come, but we're used to Zoom calls, Teams calls, aren't we? And in a way, we've all got to know each other better through that, you know, irrespective of which, which countries someone's actually based in. And, and you can see their home lives, you know, just from the background. That's right. Of these That's calls. right. You know, what books are you reading? Oh, there's a little model race car there. What team do you support? Oh, there's a football T-shirt. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? It's completely different to what we're used to. Yeah, I was talking to a colleague recently about this phenomenon that said, think back a couple of years ago, the thought of having a barking dog, if you were <laughs> dialing into a, uh, a business call, right? And maybe you were working yeah. from your home office that day, but maybe it was that your Friday of the week, you would have been horrified, right? You know, it's like, oh my gosh, um, you know, quiet the dog. And now it becomes almost like uh, everyone enjoys that because it's, it's like, hey, everybody, no one has to um, put that pressure on themselves, right? You know, whether it's yeah. kids in the background, people understand. There's a greater understanding there, right? which I yeah. think is yeah, more of a neat. puppy that's chewing someone's elbow. It it's just <laughs> lightens <laughs> yeah. the mood. No, it's great. Absolutely. It's great. Absolutely. Now, Peter, I know you've been a strong advocate around the value of uh, data analytics in marketing for a long time. And we talked a little bit earlier about this whole art and science and the balance there, but what are some of your thoughts on, on what you've seen in terms of how the marketing function has really uh, enhanced uh, and evolved its decision-making to be more data-driven uh, in, in recent years? What have you seen? I've, I've, we see, sort of see there's still a problem with making data and analytics interesting to people because it's not a classical creative marketing design area, is it? And, you know, if we go back 10, 20 years, the big platforms were still, you know, old IBM machines and Siebel came on the market and, and these more big systems that were trying to do everything and had, in theory, the great benefits you could just compress all of your data in one place and, and then each aspect of of those systems um updated and, and kept that data up to date and of course now we've gone 
totally the other way. And each of these specialist software applications, they're all brilliant at what they do, whether it's marketing automation, call center system, um, events, technologies, and so on. But the problem is that the ownership of those systems has now been distributed out to the specialist users, of course. Um, and for some reason, the integration aspects don't get thought of very much. And therefore, you've got customer data, prospect data on, on different stages of evolution within the same organization, within these different speciality applications. So although um, it is possible to integrate, I think that's got to be the focus of our, our industry is, is to be able to have a central single version of the proof, to use that expression, um, mm -hmm. which yeah. updates every other system. Because unless you've got that, unless we uh, cross that bridge and, and, and get that in place, we can't really do all that really nice analytics. And um, it becomes difficult to do market penetration studies or for salespeople to follow up leads if their own data hasn't been updated in the light of customer calls that have come into a call center. So I think that's still the big challenge at the moment. Yeah, I think settling on a methodology and sticking with that methodology so you have some continuity in measurement over time. I've been in many organizations, and one of the challenges is just the the shifting winds, right? And so you'll, you'll settle at a point in time, we're going to measure something in this way, and then maybe you have a change of leadership, you have um, changing conditions. It's like, well, wait a minute, um, let's... Um, let's change this. All right. And it's, so sometimes I think you can overthink it and then you're constantly changing and then you never have a solid baseline in any sort of continuity. So I think you're spot on there, Peter. I think, I think the, I've, I've rarely seen this, but I, I think the marketing ops room of, of the future will be something like NASA control where you've just got these big screens and you've got a team and they, they can just see everything. They can see real time, uh, hits onto the website, customers, it's also popping a CRM record. And then you can see someone phoning into the call center and dive in and look at the metrics for the number of calls. Right. And then all the way through the pipeline, you know, let's have that in one big ops room. There's, technically, there's no reason why you shouldn't do those, do that these days. And that would be a very powerful thing. So we'll uh, one of these days find a client that wants to invest in just doing that. Yeah, I've got that NASA image now in my mind, Peter. I like that. That's yeah. great. The guy in the waistcoat. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, the one. Yeah, good. So let's shift now to uh, this area of events. And you've been helping your clients achieve greater return on investment using technology and applications for that uh, for a long time now. And given all this disruption, I, I highlighted just some of the quantitative aspects that supported just how disrupted the, the industry has been uh, over the past year. What's your assessment of where uh, events uh, are, where that marketplace is right now? And in terms of paradigm shifts, you know, we talked about the increased digitization. Uh, where do you see things going? Uh, and do you think there's going to be lasting reshaping of, of how organizations approach engaging customers and how they plan for events. Do you think that's going to be long-lasting change beyond the pandemic? 
it's definitely going to be changed, but my goodness, it's so hard, isn't it, to remove the clouds and the crystal ball um, because the pandemic's gone on for so long. We're almost in the, the second wave of development of surviving in the event industry without live events because that sort of first wave was driven by the event organisers. So, oh, my God, we've had to cancel our show, but we'd better do something instead. Let's have a virtual event. And there was this huge rush to dust down whatever was available as, as an event, virtual event platform to, to deliver those. And I think, by and large, they did a really good job. In the short time, it was fantastic how quickly people did pivot to, to do those yeah. virtual events. But... Within six months or so, our clients were started to say, well, okay, it was fine, but we didn't really get anything out of it. We didn't get the needs that we needed compared to a live show. And, you know, four or five months into the pandemic, we all thought we'd be coming out of it pretty soon, didn't we? We weren't expecting the second wave to hit. And where we stand now is that uh, we're pretty confident that live events, particularly in the US, are going to be back. So July, August, there's some big shows pending for Vegas and Houston, for instance, um, in, in August. And uh, let's pray those happen, because I think there are two schools of thought. There's, there's one, let's just get back to live events. We're all fed up in lockdown. We can't see our customers, salespeople, that don't find the alternatives as good. And maybe we'll just go back to the way it was. You know, some, some people are saying that. Personally, I, I like the hybrid idea, but with reservations, because a good hybrid event will put the onus on the exhibitor to doubly invest. They've got to invest in a, a live event trade show booth and all that's right with it logistics and everything else but how are they going to deal with maybe more people that want to attend their booth virtually you know so do we need a live stream tv broadcast do we need to put a little sort of breakfast tv type studio at the top of the booth you know on another level have live streams with an audience do we have a virtual reception desk to greet people and welcome them the way we would if it was uh, in person. Um, and I think, let's say yes to all of those, that would be fantastic because you could generate many more leads than maybe you would get in person. And therefore your ROI potentially could be much better. But I think the key question is, will the organisers and the venues invest in the tech to allow that to happen? Because the bandwidth is going to have to expand so much. And if we all joke, don't we, about the quality of Wi-Fi shows. And it's normally pretty dreadful. That's, That's right. nothing compared to what we're going to need for these live streams and live broadcasting and so on. So technically it's a problem. And secondly, if in the past as an exhibitor you're happy to spend, relatively happy, to spend 5 to 10% of your tech, you know, for the Wi-Fi and some routers and things like that. Are you prepared to spend 50 or 60% of double the budget 
to go hybrid properly. So love the concept, potentially it can work really well, but there's some huge hurdles to get across. So it's a very, very interesting moment. It is, and it almost feels like every week, every month, it's it's like this rolling, everyone sitting and watching uh, and and kind of re- reforming maybe a vision for the future a bit based on what's happened. You know, so it, we're, we're still in this continuous um, rolling period, I think, uh-huh. around that. And so thinking about emerging technologies, uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, facial recognition, I've heard I've, some some buzz around that. Uh, in terms of what that might mean, in terms of event type uh, situations, yes. Any yes. any imminent breakthroughs there, Peter? That are that are around the corner. Yeah, I mean, I I love facial recognition. It's great technology. Um, of course, the uh, privacy guys are up in arms about it, and, and the use of it by police forces and, and CCTV and all that. I mean, there are big issues, of course. But for events, I think it's great. Why don't we want to be recognised and greeted without having to manually enter your contact details and for registration and so on? So a good friend of mine is, is Panos down at Zenus uh, in Houston, and uh, we've had many meetings to see how we could do more together. So I'm sure that relationship will develop um, and, and be really, really useful at events. Um, and on the other side, um, we, we've been looking at the 3D world. Initially, it was just as a sort of stopgap through the pandemic. Can't go to shows, so let's create the 3D space and see how we can um, offer that to, to clients to, to continue to run events online with the, you know a much better, richer experience than a some of these sort of 2D-like virtual shows. Um, that's had great take-up, and so much so we see that as a, a new piece of tech to be in the salesman's armory in the future, um, so that you know people that can't go to shows, you can invite them to your 3D booth, take them around and have exactly the same conversations, or go on your super yacht or your aircraft of a show, you know, for weeks and months after a show for people that can't attend. And you can actually do more and demonstrate more with the tech, um, with sort of holographic type displays. So I think that's going to be wonderful. And there's another catalyst from the pandemic that's triggered this new thinking. So, you know, all of those things are moving quite rapidly. and That's pretty exciting. Yeah, that that is exciting. It's much more immersive, and it's this idea. It's kind of almost a virtual reality type experience, right? In the context yeah. of a virtual event. Yeah, we'll yep. definitely yep. be watching that. So we've talked a lot in our conversation about uh, the challenges uh, that uh, the event space is facing, and and the pivots that have occurred over the past year. But Peter, when you think about the future of marketing and events specifically, what makes you optimistic? I mean, it's been brutal, hasn't it? As you said, the number of people affected in the events industry. And I don't think governments around the world have recognised how important the events industry has been. If, you know, you take the huge scale of it, it's not just trade shows, it's pop concerts and other outdoor events and shows and things. So that's been disappointing. Um, But having said that, 
um, you know, the companies have survived. As you said, they've pivoted, they've come up with new technologies, it's created a new momentum. Um, so all of that, yeah, makes me very optimistic for the future. Um, Schwarzenegger and we'll be back is, is a classic <laughs> statement at the moment, isn't it? That's right. That's right. No, I like that. It's it's the optimism, and it's uh, again showing that resilience and that ability to adapt and uh, yeah, and, to. and continue to move forward. Yeah, you really do. So, as we wrap up our conversation, Peter, do you have any final advice for other business leaders that are seeking you know continued success in this highly dynamic environment we all are facing? Um, I think my advice could rather boring in a way and um, you know if you're starting a new business it's and the innovation is is taking root and you've got clients coming on board and so on then the, the, it's so easy to get carried away and see all of these increments coming in and leads and just the building the business is to forget to look after your customer base well and maximize those opportunities. So one of the things I've learned over the decades, it's always invest in a really good account management plan, uh, which just goes through client by client, the, the types of client that they are. Um, are they a partner type client? Are you growing with them? Could they grow with you with a bit more of a, a catalyst somewhere along the line? And, uh, you know, what other opportunities are in those account groups? Because it's so much easier to sell to subsidiaries of an existing client than it is to, to sell into to new areas. So continually analyze and look at the business you do have. And from my experience, you'll find that the, the solid growth of the business will come from the, the companies you know and love already. So, um, yeah, fairly boring comment, but uh, I think it's pretty valid. Well, I think it's an eternal principle that has just proven itself to be invaluable, and that is focus on the customer, and then things just tend to take care of themselves, right? But it all starts with having a strong customer focus. Yeah, yeah, totally. All the way Absolutely. Through. Yep. Well, Peter, thanks again for joining and sharing your experiences, and uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing more of the continued innovation that uh, MarketPoint and Zuon are going to bring uh, to help marketers and really uh, help fuel this uh, resilience and uh, rebound and success in the event space. Thanks again. Thanks, Dan. Great to chat. And a reminder to all of you, please uh, take a moment to go out and rate and review. If you like this podcast, uh, Apple Podcast is a real easy way to give us that feedback. Uh, and thanks in advance for doing that. And also, as always, Remember to go check out marketimpactnow.com for the latest in business leadership perspectives. So long until next time.